Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz. And I'm Howie Foreman. We are physicians and professors at Yale University. We're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. This week, we have a special guest. No, no, guest. wait, 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 Howie. This is, a, this is a surprise this week on the guest. So uh, let's just hold off on that. We'll do the first segment and then uh, okay, we'll introduce, okay. then we'll introduce the guest to the listeners. All right, let, let well, hang let's, in the... let's at least check in on current health news then. What's on your mind? Well, this week I was thinking I would share a, a little bit of a thing that's unfolding around vitamin C. I mean, most people who are listening know about vitamin C, but they, and they also know broadly about the idea of promoting vitamins. But what they may not know is the long list of studies that have really failed to show that largely vitamins in a well-nourished society uh, don't seem to be making a, a big difference. But that doesn't stop people from getting excited about it. It doesn't stop a billion-dollar business from, from occurring. And uh, so we are still on a march to sort of figure out whether vitamins make any difference. And from time to time, certain studies come up that, that suggest that they're beneficial, but then that sometimes leads to other studies that may, may change the story. Look, when I wanted to talk about vitamin C, I also made a great discovery. Discovered that you, in grade school, wrote your first report in science on vitamin C. So then I thought, well, right? Is that right? That is correct. Well, did you Line get an A? Falling. I mean, what was it on? It was about Linus Pauling and ascorbic acid vitamin C, and uh, you know, and and I followed that so closely for like the next ten years. It was a topic I couldn't stop focusing on. And that's a perfect example. Double Nobel Prize winner, brilliant guy, a little bit of a of a shaded legacy because of issues around his views on a wide range of social issues that that uh, turned out to be uh, off off the rails. But the no doubt smart guy, but then start pushing vitamin C for colds, and there's still a lack of strong evidence around that. I don't know. What was the conclusion of your third grade essay? Uh, that, that we didn't know. And I, I remember like feeling how brilliant that is, that we don't know the answer. But Linus Pauling had won two Nobel Prizes, and he believed it. So it definitely was my bias at the time. But anyway, I'm, I'm, the, the main thing that I was going to say was that, that vitamin C had been used in at least one single center small study, about 47 people, and the authors were giving intravenous vitamin C for a condition that's life-threatening, sepsis. Now, this is what happens when, when people tend to get, you know, every, all their organ systems start to shut down in the face of a massive infection. Uh, it's responsible for about half the deaths in, in, among everyone who's hospitalized. Uh, because this thing is just so devastating. And so we're constantly in search for ways to make earlier diagnoses and to intervene better. Anyway, these people put in place a randomized study. They suggested there was benefit. It led to a large study that was just, just published June 15th. And in that study, it was a randomized placebo-controlled controlled trial of people in the ICU for not more than 24 hours who were needing medicines to help support their blood pressure. And they studied uh, almost uh, 900 people and in one group, uh, you know, they gave intravenous vitamin C. And in the other group, they gave an infusion that was without, you know, was just without anything in it, right? Just to determine what would happen. Lo and behold, at the end of the day, no benefit, no benefit. So again, you know, you've got this situation where like a lot of hope and, and then they actually test it formally and they fail to find a benefit. And, I, and another reason I wanted to bring this up today was this just reminds me of all the swirl around COVID and, you know, and long COVID and, and vaccine injury and a whole range of conditions. 
and a small number of people, you know, hold out hope. They, these people are desperate, and there seems to be a, a, a little bit of good news, and maybe one center suggests something's beneficial, but this just shows why we have to be disciplined in the science and really test the things well to determine if there's a benefit. No, I mean, it makes me thankful that people do it. This trial on sepsis and vitamin C is really enormous in a sense. You, you mentioned over 800 people, I think. And, and by the way, one other vitamin that's been in the news over the last several months and throughout the pandemic has been vitamin D. And I believe there too, even though there's a strong correlation with vitamin D deficiency and worse outcomes from COVID because of probably coexisting factors, um, there has been no evidence that using vitamin D as a therapy is actually helping patients. So this is another example of a vitamin being used in treatment that people are advocating for. You can, you can go on websites and find people celebrating the use of vitamin D to prevent or, or treat COVID, and there's no evidence that that works either. Yeah. So, so Howie, let's move on to our special guest today. I thought that the uh, listeners might, might enjoy this. We've we decided this week to have you as the special guest, you, Howie Foreman. Well, I'm, I'm shocked and surprised, but thank well, you. Well, you know, we searched high and low for the very best person we could find it. And, and funnily enough, you were available at this time slot, so we were able to, to get you in this week. And let me just formally introduce you to people, and then I'm, I'm going to start off with a question just to get you, get you going. But for, for those listening, you're very familiar with, of course, Professor Howard Foreman. You may know that he's a professor of diagnostic radiology and public health and economics and management, all those together. He directs the healthcare management program at the Yale School of Public Health and teaches healthcare economics in the Yale College Economics Department. He's the faculty founder and director of the MD MBA program at the Yale School of Medicine, as well as faculty director of the healthcare focus of the School of Management's MBA executive program. I can't even get this all out, Howie, because it's so much, but I'll do one more that you're co-founder with uh, Marcella Nunez-Smith to the Posen Commonwealth Fund Fellowship and Health Equity Leadership Program, which focuses exclusively on the issues around health equity and trying to improve uh, the careers of many people who are from underrepresented groups within our healthcare system. And, and you're, you're, you're so much more than that. I mean, I'm just trying to make the introduction, but one thing I wanted to start out with was there are people in our midst who want to make a career of being a great teacher and a great mentor. And, and you do many things. You do clinical things, you've done research, you're, you're doing a lot of things. But, but what you're known for most, in my opinion, is being one of the best mentors, teachers in the world. So how did you do this? I mean, how were you attracted to, to this kind of career and how did you make it a success? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I think um, one of the, the difficulties of mentorship is that it's almost you know, by de definition, uncompensated work. And so I think a lot of people are not able to make a lot of time for it. You do, by the way, just for our listeners, I mean, you, you're very kind about me, but I can give a long list of incredibly <laughs> successful people <laughs> that you. you've mentored. You. Um, but, but it is like the core of what I am and what I have been. Um, and I'm fortunate to be able to interact with students at the undergraduate, the graduate, the graduate medical education, and, and, and so on levels. Um, and now I have this role for the health system, which is clinical leadership development. And so I have the good fortune of meeting with people who are early, mid-career professionals looking to continue leadership in healthcare. Um, and it does start to feed on itself after a while, because once you 
build the network, you're able to connect people more easily and help them more easily. And I think it's always helped me that um, I am very satisfied in my own job and I have no aspirations. So when I reach out to someone and say, can you speak to somebody, people know that I'm not looking for anything in return. I'm just looking to help somebody. And you know, I, I will remind people that there's mentorship, there's sponsorship, there's advice, there's coaching, there's different things you could do. In, in the last year and a half, I got trained as an executive coach, which is different than mentoring and it's different than advising and it's different from sponsorship. And we each can play those different roles, but I've found over these last 26 years at Yale that helping people develop their careers is one of the most satisfying things to me. And while some of it may be undercompensated, the School of Management and the uh, Yale New Haven Health System have, have valued that. When, when did it occur to you that this was going to be a central part of your career? I mean, you were socialized like the rest of us through really a focus, clinical and research kind of get, you know, all the star power and all the attention. When, when did it occur to you that this could be a central tenet of your career? You know, I'll be honest with you. I think I was starting to do this in high school. I, I was, for whatever reason, people who are much older than me wanted to talk to me about careers, about decisions, and I would talk to them. And there was this genuine sense, even though I was obviously very young, there was this genuine sense that just allowing people to talk and freely speak about what they were doing and why they were doing it would get them to realize things that they weren't otherwise coming to, what, what, what they enjoyed, what they didn't enjoy, what they felt they were really good at but enjoyed versus what they were really good at but hated. Um, and trying to get to that intersection of things that make you happy, things that you are really good at, and things that other people value in you. The intersection of those three things is what most people are trying to achieve. Everybody is able to reach that intersection. How much we can make the intersection of those three things, the core of what we do, is the challenge for most people. And, and along the way, like I said, that it tends to be devalued and not adequately budgeted within the process. So somebody often doesn't say, well, that's great. You're doing so much mentoring. Let's make sure that you're supported for that. I mean, that, in general, in our discussions within our with our chiefs and so forth, I mean, it's just assumed we're going to do that work. But now you, you've made it a centerpiece. Can you just reflect? I mean, did did you run into obstacles, you know, to to being able to establish that and getting the adequate credit for it? I know you're not seeking credit, but honestly, as you go up in your career, you've got to be promoted, you've got to get people to pay attention to this, not as a sidelight, which it is for many, but actually as a central way. And, and you, by the way, you're not a dean. like So it's one thing for some dean of education, that's a job. But you're doing it as a faculty member, honestly. I mean, I know you've, you started running programs, you started, you actually began programs. But but anyway, can you just talk about that path for, you know, once you decide yeah, you're to do that? I think it's very frustrating. I mean, I'm not I'm not going to lie about that. I mean, we we um, you know very early on there were people that said to me, "Why are you making so much time for these people? Like it's not going to help you in any way, shape, or form." And I just felt obligated to do it. And so I would be meeting with students as soon as I started teaching in the undergraduate Yale College. I I was my office would be filled with undergraduates coming in for 30 minute meetings and it was time consuming. Over time, I figured out how to make it more efficient and how to make sure I could be available. I now do Zoom office hours on weekends and so on. 
but it is undercompensated or in most cases uncompensated in financial terms. But again, the intersection of those three circles is about making you feel better, having utility, uh, having satisfaction in your work. And not every part of your job has to be compensated. There are things that you can do that are completely uncompensated, but give you so much utility that it's worth it. And let's face it, at this point in both of our careers, we can point to people who we've helped who are highly successful. Many of those people will give us credit for the for some of their successes, however true or untrue that may be. And that's also deeply satisfying. Yeah, by the way, just quickly, like how did, you're an unbelievably you know, amazing healthcare economist, but you don't have a PhD, you got an MBA, you're a radiologist. How do you end up teaching in Yale College? Yeah, so that's a, a funny story where, uh, you know, the Balanced Budget Act in 1997 uh, obviously passes in 97, and my life is miserable as an administrator in radiology. Uh, I don't think I realized just how dramatic that that had an impact on the healthcare system, but it made my life miserable. And, and so and I was how, looking how did it how did it make it miserable? It was the single largest cut in hospital reimbursement uh, in the history of Medicare. And being someone involved in hospital administration through radiology, we were expected to help figure out how the hospital could could cut their budget, and it was just difficult. Um, and at that time, I was really looking to leave medicine, leave uh, Yale. I considered other opportunities. Um, uh, you came to my rescue at a time during that period, but one of those things is I reached out to the economics department and said, can I teach macroeconomics? And they laughed at me. They said, we have Nobel laureates teaching uh, macroeconomics. We can't have a <laughs> medical school faculty member. But within like five seconds, he then uh, said, but you know what? We have this fellow coming to teach health economics in the spring of 99. Would you be willing to teach it in the fall of 98? And I, I don't remember how long it took me to say yes, but it wasn't more than a minute. And uh, by 1998, I started teaching in the econ department. And I that first day teaching, that rush of teaching, and, and I come from a family of teachers, that has never left me. I love it to this day. It is it is the best drug. And you know that particular position, teaching in the econ department, is probably my most undercompensated job, but it is also my most most enjoyable one. Well, yeah, maybe it's an opportunity for you to. I know your parents are so important to you and have been such formidable influences. Do you want to just say a word or two about about who they are and how they've how the role they've played in your life? Absolutely. I mean, it was, you know, obvious from from day one that my parents were teachers. They went went off to teach every single day. My father wore a sport jacket and a tie, and so to this day on the days I teach, I wear a sport jacket and a tie. They both were much loved by their students. I, I remember well my father coming home with gifts from students from a whole class because they just loved him. And um, and the same thing went for my mother. And, and by the way, my sister is retiring from teaching this uh, coming week. Uh, and so I'm going down to see her retirement party. So teaching was not just in the blood, but it was honored. And I came to realize late later on that like there's no higher service that we can give than to teach. And in fact, the word doctor derives from the, uh, the, the word teacher, I think in Latin, but it's to teach. Yeah, no, it's, it's so really remarkable. And of course, I've had the, the pleasure, honor of meeting your parents. They are amazing, amazing people. And, and uh, they've touched me too, just by just getting to know them. Well, one of the things I've seen with your 
teaching also is sort of a commitment to like what we're doing in the podcast, translating medical knowledge for the general public. How are you, how do you think about that? How do you effectively connect outside the profession to help educate people around issues that are going on in medicine? Yeah, so I, I try to learn from everybody and, 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 you know, I got on Twitter very early on, but didn't use Twitter until six years ago. But I learned a lot from you on Twitter and the fact that we can really influence people's understanding of complex issues through Twitter. You mostly communicate with a sophisticated medical audience. My goal has always been to, to talk to people that are not necessarily in the field. And that's why it's been great with you that we get to do this podcast. Our audience uh, is sort of purposefully not necessarily doctors or PhDs, but, but people who are educated and interested in, in health and healthcare. Um, and between, if you think about what both of us do right now, we have medical communications, we have a podcast, we have Twitter and other social media that we use, we have uh, teaching opportunities, in my case, a lot of teaching opportunities. Um, this, I think, is one of the most important things we can do because you could have the best science in the world, but if you're not communicating it, you're, the, the, um, the opportunity is, wa- is in a great part wasted. Yeah, and in this world of misinformation, you know, I think it's more important than ever for these trustworthy, credible sources. And you, as you know, for your as a teacher, you know, your role in this has just been so important. You know, one thing I wanted to ask you: so, as you look forward, of course, lots is changing in teaching. I mean, the methods, the approach, technology. I mean, it, you, you know, what do you see for yourself and for the field with regard to what what next steps are? You know, how, what's it going to look like in ten years? Do you think? So COVID changed a lot. And, uh, you know, it was around this time two years ago that I taped all my lectures and flipped the classroom for the fall semester of 2020 because Yale was not returning to in-person teaching at that time. And I was very uncertain of what that would feel like. I taught in this office on this screen. Um, It was not enjoyable at all, but we were able to make it through it. And I learned a lot about how you can do both synchronous and asynchronous teaching, how you can use a flipped classroom, how you can take, you know, lemons and turn them into lemonade. But I also learned that there's a lot about um, teaching and learning that occurs in a classroom with people interacting with one another. So I don't think we're going to walk away from Uh, the in-person teaching, but the business model of teaching and the scale of teaching online does support that we could, as as we like to say, democratize higher education by using some of those technologies, by using synchronous and asynchronous teaching uh, to reach many more people and making higher education affordable to more individuals without burdening them with uh, enormous debt. Yeah, I think you know, there shouldn't be just a small group of people at Yale who get the chance to sit in your class. The more that we can make the class, well, it may not be the same experience, but at least it, it, it's part of the exposure. Let me just end by asking you if, if you could relate a story. Like, what's one of the most satisfying things you've had without necessarily revealing names of an individual? But, but over the course of all this time, in your role as a mentor and as a teacher, you know, what was one of those days that you came home and you thought, like, God, there's nothing like this? Well, I mean, you know, I mentioned a few weeks ago about a couple of students graduating, so I won't go back to that one, but that's very satisfying to watch people succeed and to, and to give you the feedback that lets you feel like you were part of that. 
But one of the most satisfying things is that person that you don't necessarily notice in the class who 10 years later, 15 years later, writes you a long email explaining how their career has turned out this way and how their time in your classroom was the moment that things changed. And I've gotten enough of those letters over the years from people who have nothing to gain at that point from sending such a letter to believe that it's genuine. And it reminds me that you, you don't necessarily know who you're impacting the most at the time you're teaching them, that things settle in at different paces at different times. And we, we have an op opportunity and an obligation to you know, afford everybody in that room the same effort. Well, this has been great to hear from you. I, I will say that what you've taught me so much, and when I watch you, what, what really you exemplify is a deep professional commitment to doing your best every day for every person, no matter what, making the time, doing the work, and, and also, you know, enjoying the relationships. I also see that, that you're able to sustain these relationships over decades, and it's just really a tribute to to what you do. I know you're a role model for so many. And and let me just say thank you for coming on the podcast today. <laughs> thank you for having me. You know, this was really great, Harlan. And I, I look forward to us uh, flipping the script sometime and, and doing the same thing with you. Yeah, sure. But, yeah, that'd be uh, fun. Thank you. Okay, let's turn to the next segment. And, and now I'm with my partner, Howie Foreman, who we're in this part of the segment, I get to ask him as now he takes off his hat as guest and resumes his role as co-host. Uh, what what's been on his mind this week, Howie? So so what do you, what's uh, what's keeping you up at night or getting you excited these days? Yeah, so so I'm not ready to declare even a small victory. In fact, just just as I came on here today, I saw on Twitter that there are some hiccups. But uh, the uh, gun violence uh, and and gun reform bill that's pending in the Senate right now. Um, it's not a victory right now, but they seem to be making progress, and I think it's very possible that it will, in one form or another, get passed by the Senate and House and signed into law by the president. Uh, it includes a few of the things we talked about before, specifically red flag laws, enhanced background checks for those under 21, and some less controversial measures such as school safety funding and mental health investments. But we'll wait to see more about that. But I wanted today to just go, go back to another sort of public health issue that people don't necessarily think is public health. And it was brought to me by a thread that I saw from Arnold Schwarzenegger, the, the former governor of uh, California and, and obviously a media star. Um, and he had a thread talking about the challenges and opportunities presented by climate change and fossil fuel pollution and its relation to children's health. And I don't think it was intentional, but it came out at the exact same time uh, that there's a review article in the current week issue of the New England Journal of Medicine on the same topic. So I'd urge listeners to look at both and to learn more about fossil fuel pollution, climate change, and the relation to children's health. So there, there are two key points from the governor's uh, pithy thread. Seven million people died last year from the direct effects of pollution. Seven million people. Right? It's an enormous number, direct effects of pollution. And for the first time ever, a nine-year-old child's death in London was explicitly on her death certificate attributed to pollution. The New England Journal of Medicine article highlighted the vast adverse health effects on children and fetuses from air pollution and climate change, including two million preterm births worldwide 
in 2019 alone. So climate change and pollution have enormous population level impacts on health. Our individual abilities to mitigate this for ourselves, for our families is de minimis, meaning um, you know, whatever I do isn't gonna help me personally. Uh, and this is in contradistinction, for instance, to infectious disease where my individual actions do have su substantial impact on my own destiny, even as they also help the population. When it comes to climate change and, and pollution, our collective efforts are required to tackle these issues. But that should not be confused with the belief that each of us does not have individual responsibility to health. And you'll find, and I think you know this about me, I'm not an absolutist about almost anything, but certainly most things. Um, but each person will make daily choices that are either gonna preserve, improve, or worsen our environment. And, and some days we might do all three of those things. But if we each make an effort to leave the world in a slightly better place than when we arrived, everyone would benefit. And in Hebrew, we call this tikkun olam, or repair the world. Uh, and frankly, we just need more of this right now. I'm really glad you brought this up today. You know, this is a thing that occupies my thoughts a lot, too, because, I, you know, we're all in this together. It's about climate change. Air quality, of course, is a big thing. I, as you know, I spent a lot of time in China over the last decade prior to the pandemic, and it, especially around 2014, you may remember the Beijing uh, airpocalypse, you know, when when the, you know, you, it was such a dense fog, but it wasn't a natural fog. It was a, a man-made pollution fog that, you know, you, your air, your visibility was only a couple hundred yards. And, and uh, you know, then there's been a spate of articles that just show, you know, how the when the daily maximum PM 2.5, the the small particles in the air, you know, get to a certain level. And, and, you know, you're talking about it in the UK, but when we look at Delhi, we look at Beijing, we look, I mean, actually China's gotten a little bit better, but we look at a lot of cities around the world. I mean, they are, you know, much, much worse. And people are much less protected because of the situation. Then we see the heat in India where air conditioning is really only for a minority of the population. We, we, we see you know, greater possibilities of harm. So this is something we all have to dig into, recognize it, it's on the magnitude of a pandemic. I mean, the number of people who can be harmed, the in our capacity to actually mitigate, you know, is also substantial if we'll just act act together. So, yeah, I, I, I'm glad you brought it up. It's a major issue and one we, we, that should hold our attention. Yeah, and, and I will say that there are people who are enormous advocates for sort of government action on these topics who aren't necessarily doing their, I'm, I'm not criticizing any specific individuals, but I think it's not gonna be about the government solving this. It's gonna be about us all working together and the government doing its part uh, to make progress in this direction. And I thought, you know, Schwarzenegger's thread, for those of you who see it, and we'll link it in the, uh, um, in our posting, but his thread was was good. It was actually a very optimistic thread, even though he talked about this nine-year-old girl dying. You know, I have this dream that our society changes its tune and says, our whole reason for being is to make it better for those who follow us and, and not to be so focused on what it's like tomorrow or the next day, but actually to say, what's it going to be like in 20, 30, 40 years? And let people know that we were the ones who invested in that better future, even with some uncertainty about different actions. But we're going to place bets, bets that if we do certain things, it's going to be better for those who follow. And that's just not the spirit right now. I mean, we have to try to figure out how to 
how to make it so that our own sacrifice for the future builds a better planet, builds a better future. 100%. You've been listening to Health and Veritas with Harlan Krumholtz and Howie Foreman. So how did we do? To give us your feedback or to keep the conversation going, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at H-M-K-Y-A-L-E. That's H-M-K-Yale. And I'm at the Howie. That's at T-H-E-H-O-W-I-E. Aside from the Twitter, uh, from Twitter and our podcast, I'm fortunate to be the faculty director of the healthcare track and founder of the MBA for Executives program at the Yale School of Management. Feel free to reach out via email or for more information on our innovative programs, or you can check out our website at som.yale.edu backslash EMBA. And after today, why wouldn't somebody want you as a mentor? So they should check out this program. Health and Veritas is produced with the Yale School of Management. Thanks to our researcher, Jenny Tan, and to our producer, Miranda Schaefer. Talk to you soon, Howie. Great session today. Thanks, Harlan. Thanks very much. Talk to you soon.